Welcome. We are so glad that you have joined us for this first installment of a new podcast that we're going to be putting out as Perimeter Church uh, called Thinking Biblically. And just so you know, this is something that we're going to be doing uh, more on a consistent basis and really in two different directions. One is going to be in this this stream of thinking biblically, where from time to time we'll, we'll take some uh, different uh, issues and, and topics that we think are important that perhaps we're dealing with as a as a culture, society, and just say, hey, let's make sure that we're anchoring in the biblical text on how we're thinking about this, how we're relating to it, and how we're engaging with it. And then uh, we're going to do another stream that will be another part of a perimeter uh, podcast uh, that would be called Digging Deeper. And that will be more, more in, in line with what we're doing on a teaching series front, where uh, we often say as pastors, there's only so much that you can dig into on a Sunday morning or uh, in a service. And so what we want to do is we want to be able to come alongside of our series uh, in the future where we'll have a podcast where the teaching team sits around and we say, hey, let's dig deeper into this text. Let's sit in it. What are some things we would have said if we had more time? So in our upcoming series that I'm greatly looking forward to called uh, The Image of God, that'll be starting on July 12th, we'll be doing that. We'll be doing a Digging Deeper podcast series along with that uh, with that teaching series. And so that'll be something to look forward to. But this is called thinking biblically. We want to think biblically, particularly about this issue that has certainly been uh, an emotionally charged issue and one that is uh, on our Facebook and Instagram and Twitter feeds every day. It's a topic of conversation that we all have been aware of, and it's important. It's extremely important. And that's the issue of race in America and what we would call at our church, uh, the biblical effort, the gospel-centered effort of redemptive unity. And so I have some guests with me this morning. My name is Jeff Norris. I'm the senior pastor here at Perimeter Church. But alongside of me this morning, um, sitting to my right, I have Caleb Click, who serves uh, as one of our pastors here. Caleb, if you will, tell them what your title is, what you do here at the church. And many many of our listeners who are members of our church certainly know who you are and, and have heard you preach often. But uh, if you will, just take a moment, tell us a, about what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Jeff Said. I'm Caleb Click. I'm the pastor of spiritual and theological formation here at Perimeter Church. I serve on the teaching team as one of the guys that uh, brings sermons from time to time. Uh, and I also I do a lot with our, our liturgy at the church. Awesome. Tell us about your family real quick too. I want one of our listeners to feel like they you know a little bit of a relational connection to who they're hearing sure. from. So I've been married to my wife, Mallory, for going on 11 years. Um, we've got three little girls, a five-year-old named Mary Neal, and then twins that are three named Lucy and Alice. Uh, so we've got a full and crazy house. Yep. It's yep. a lot of fun. Yep. Lots going on. I was at Caleb's house yesterday, and uh, it was eventful. We'll just leave it at that, but and all in a good way. Lots of princess dresses. Lots of that And changing. That changed a lot. That's yes. right. So to Caleb's right is Bob Cargo, again, a member of the teaching team. Many of you know Bob as he has preached at Perimeter, been on staff at Perimeter for how many years, Bob? A uh, long time. Yeah. You know, uh, in this role as director of church planting is what I do for, golly, about 17 or 18 years now, and planted in-town community church in a previous lifetime Yeah, uh, as a part <laughs> of Perimeter as well. 
Yeah. And then your family? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, my wife is Margaret Ann. Uh, we have two sons and two daughters and one wonderful daughter-in-law, two wonderful grandsons. And That's good. Uh, across the table from him, Jimmy Kim. Jimmy is our director of Redemptive Unity. And we'll come back in a moment to hear from Jimmy on like, what do we mean by that when we say Redemptive Unity? But tell us how long you've been at Perimeter, Jimmy, and, and about your family. Yeah, Jimmy Kim, director of Redemptive Unity, like you said. I've been at Perimeter uh, going into my 10th year now and um, started doing a lot of things with the student ministries in regards to discipleship and then have transitioned into the the role that I'm in now, Redemptive Unity, uh, just last March. Uh, Married for 15 years to my beautiful and intelligent wife, Shin, who is a public health scientist. Um, We have two kids, a 10-year-old, Evangeline, and a 6-year-old, Emmett. Which makes what it occurs to me that uh, if if we were to do a thinking biblically podcast, I'm not saying that we are, but if we were on a COVID, we would definitely want Shin at the table for that. So you will get some opinions. That is for sure. <laughs> and a lot of statistics. I, I should say you'll get more statistics than opinions. Yeah, she's brilliant and uh, doing a wonderful job uh, with that here in Atlanta. All right, and then to Jimmy's right, to my left, is Chip Sweeney. Chip has, uh, serves alongside me on the executive leadership team, has been um, been at Perimeter for quite a while. You want to tell us about your time at Perimeter, how long you've been here, and then about your family? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Yes, I've been on staff uh, 24 years this summer and uh, am married to uh, amazing woman, Leanne. We actually celebrate... 30 years at the end of next month. Nice. So uh, she has hung in there for for a long time and um, is incredible. We have two children. Our daughter Caroline is 24. She is a seventh grade math teacher. And then our son Jack is 21 and just finished up his junior year of college. Awesome. Awesome. Quickly for me, Rachel and I are coming up very soon on our 20th wedding anniversary. So... Um, you know what? That's not right. It's 19th. I'm, I'm jumping the gun. Uh, we were married in August of 01. So uh, I've always been great at math. Uh, anyway, uh, so Rachel and I have four kids, Samuel, uh, Ellie, Kate, Abigail, and Annie. They are 17, 13, 11, and 8. So we are in the thick of the parenting waters as well. Different phase of life than from the little ones that Caleb is is in right now and, and Jimmy. But uh so I'm I'm learning a lot from Bob and Chip on how to raise teenagers and 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 that kind of thing. So, well, guys, thanks for joining me today. Uh, I'm excited about where we're asking the Lord to lead us um, as we think about this issue, and most significantly, uh, how are we going to think biblically on this issue? Now, you may wonder what is the target? What is it that we're aiming for? in this podcast. And quite simply, it's the title of the podcast. We want to anchor biblically uh, into why why is it so important that followers of Christ would be speaking up and speaking into this issue of race, into this issue of what, again, what we call redemptive unity. And uh, Chip, I'm going to come to you in just a second. I want you to kind of start us on the, where do we begin to see this biblically? But let me start with Jimmy. And, and just even defining redemptive unity, you know, what do we mean when we say that? What is, what are we getting after? 
Yeah, by redemptive unity, we are pointing to two things. We're we're looking at the redemption, the redeeming work of Christ, and what that redemption entails. That's a, a unity, a oneness that comes out of that work of redemption of Christ. And so since we're talking about this from a biblical standpoint, I'm just so excited that we're able to have the people around the table that are here. We have our teaching team. We have um, we have Chip, who is also a part, is a teaching elder in the, in the denomination. So this is a great opportunity for all of us to hear and deep dive into Scripture um, what the Bible has to say about the gospel, about race, about ethnicity, and um, and 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 in future episodes, we're certainly going to highlight and have other voices here, a greater diversity of not only experiences and ethnicities, um, but certainly, especially as it plays out in our in our body. And I'm just so excited. This is going to be, um, I think, really, it's a huge answer to prayer is what it is and that we're talking about this. And I know, Chip, you're going to talk more about that oneness and that unity piece. And I'm so excited that we're just having this conversation. Yeah, that's a good parlay into what Chip was even sharing before we started recording about just kind of, uh, as we begin to think, where do we see this biblically? Where Where is the heart of God on this issue? And even before I, I, I have you share there, Chip, I'll just even orient our listeners to maybe we, you know, perhaps we have some people listening who uh, are not familiar with our church, have not been around perimeter, and maybe perhaps some who have, who haven't even really heard us articulate what's our vision? What is it that we're going after? And so what we'll, what you'll hear us talk about often is, is our vision statement says that we long to see individuals, families, greater Atlanta. And so when we say greater Atlanta, that's the city of Atlanta and all of Metro Atlanta with us, which with it, which would be us as we, our church is positioned in, in a, um, in a Northeast suburb of, of Atlanta called Johns Creek, but we're all tied to the city. And so we'd say we long to see individuals, families, greater Atlanta and the world come into a life tra- transforming encounter with the kingdom of God. And as we think about what, is that, what does that mean then, therefore, of how we would want to see that happen, that we want to see the kingdom of God come in such a way that lives are transformed, made more into the image of Christ, and disciples are being made. And so that's a, that's a part of our mission. We want, to, we want to create those who are spiritual multipliers who are taking the gospel of Jesus Christ where they live, work, and play. And so some of the language that we use, just, just again, all of this is a bit introductory just to kind of set the table that leads us into this conversation. But some of the language that we use is we say, okay, our posture in, in pursuing this vision that the Lord has given us biblically here, our posture is that of radical dependence. We want to be radically dependent upon the Lord for Him to do what only He can do. Uh, to say, oh God, would you come and would you bring your kingdom in a way that would not be manufactured by anything that we're throwing together, but it would be truly and completely of you, of your spirit for your glory. So we talk about a posture of radical dependence, but we talk about a purpose, and this is important, this is going to lead us into this conversation. We talk about a purpose, having a purpose towards kingdom flourishing. And we use this word flourishing to get at the biblical words of shalom and arene, which is shalom is the Hebrew word, arene is the, is the Greek word that's, that we often translate in our Bibles um, as the word peace. But these words are full words that the word peace doesn't always get for us. 
right? Um, oftentimes we say peace in the American vernacular and we just simply mean the absence of conflict, which it certainly includes that. That's not a, that's not a wrong definition of, of what the Bible's getting at, but it's not a full definition of what the Bible's getting at. When the Bible speaks of shalom, when it speaks of peace, it, the better word to translate there is that we would say would be flourishing, that we would long to see God's kingdom come in such a way that image bearers of God, that's humans, would know Jesus and as a result of his kingdom coming into their lives and bringing his transforming work to bear in their lives, they would then flourish in the way God created them originally to flourish. Before sin marred us and before sin destroyed uh, at every level what we know in the human experience. And so that leads us into well, this conversation. What's involved in human flourishing? What's involved in kingdom flourishing? Well, there's all kinds of things involved in human flourishing and kingdom flourishing. Uh, and one of those things, when we talk about where does the gospel of Jesus Christ compel us, this is one of the, the ways it compels us. It's not the only way it compels us, but it compels us into this conversation of race. Where is God's heart in this? What is his desire? So Chip, I'd love for you to start us in that endeavor as we think about this, um, this target of thinking biblically. What would you say when we say, well, let's anchor biblically, where do we see this in the scriptures? What, where would you start us? Well, maybe a little more context just on me would be helpful. Yeah, that'd be great. I don't think I mentioned before that I'm executive director over our extension division, which is really all our, all our departments that are focused outside the four walls of the church. And along with that, um, myself and a number of others started a movement called uh, Unite 17 years ago. And it's a movement of churches working get together to really see uh, kingdom flourishing in communities throughout Atlanta. And so one of the things I bring to this conversation is um, 17 years of, of experience of life-on-life -life relationships with brothers and sisters of uh, a different color. Um, and so this is not a theoretical dialogue for me um, because of my deep friendships with course, my twin brother of another color, Brian White, but many others as well as, you know, I've really felt uh, with them some of the pain and challenge that they've lived because of uh, the color of their skin and their ethnicity. And so to me, this is about uh, biblical love at its root. You know, Jesus in John 13, 34 and 35 says, uh, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so the way we distinguish ourselves as followers of Christ is loving one another. Um, and so this is about biblical love. It's about biblical compassion. It's about biblical mourning and grieving and lamenting. And it's about uh, biblical oneness. Um, and this is all driven out of the gospel. It's what Jesus, you know, he sacrificed um, everything for us. He showed us a greater love than we could ever imagine. And because of that sacrifice, we able to have a new relationship and a new life. 
and are able to love in such a way um, because of the love that that he showed us. And then out of that gospel, out of that love, uh, really Paul and some of the um, uh, some of the apostles really focused on uh, this idea of oneness, that we are one in Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, he says, for he himself, meaning Jesus, himself is our peace, getting back to Irene, which is what you brought up, uh, Jeff, right there, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create one new man and place the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he's broken down every barrier and dividing wall, and uh, we are one. Our oneness in the body uh, is stronger than any other bond that we have, whether that's ethnic bond, certainly political bond, or any other bond that we have with people. It's our identity in Christ. And, you know, Jesus, he really, uh, he showed his passion for oneness as he prayed near the end of his life in John 17 right if you if you look at the full we won't read that that full prayer but one of his main cries to the father is that we may be one he says in 22 and 23 the glory that you've given me i've given to them that they may be one even as we are one i and them you and me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me and so Again, we see <clears throat> this emphasis on oneness, that we are one. And by this oneness, we have an incredible witness um, to our community. And then Paul uh, just makes it uh, so practical in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about uh, the body. And he looks at our human body and then the body of Christ. You know, the body is one, but we have many members. Um, each part of the human body as well as Christ's body uh, is extremely important. In 1 Corinthians 12, 21 and verses 26, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so we are one in the body. And so as being one, when one suffers, we suffer with them. When one is facing uh, issues of injustice to be dealt with, we do it together as one. And so uh, for me, Jeff, I just think it's so clear biblically uh, what drives this incredible love and unity and oneness. Yeah. Yeah, Jimmy, you got a thought. That's good. Chuck. Yeah. Do you guys remember the Ronco Showtime rotisserie oven? Well, any. I'll, I'll act like I do. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You will know as soon as I say this. I know this exactly phrase. what you're talking about, Jimmy. These infomercials, yeah. okay. right? Okay. They put the oven out, and what do they always say? But wait, there's more. Right? <laughs> the but wait, there's more to even what Chip is saying. Chip, you did a great job of just pointing us back to scripture over and over again. We see in the life of Christ. We see it in his work. We see it in the life of the apostles. We see it 
uh, as a marker of the early church. And then we see this also in Revelation 5 and in Revelation 7, right? Both in those chapters, verses 9 and 10. And um, we see this glimpse of John's, of, of heaven, right? Of the glorified body of Christ. You talked about the body just now in 1 Corinthians 12. And we see this oneness that they have, right? They are worshiping together. Uh, in Revelation 5, it talks about their oneness being uh, marked by their, um, that they are a ransomed people of God, right? By the blood of Christ, they are ransomed. So there's a oneness there, but then also their distinctions are made known, right? It talks about in verse, uh, the, the latter half of verse 9, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And again, in Revelation 7, Paul, uh, not Paul, John sees this vision of heaven and it's a great multitude and they're marked for her differences, right? Every nation, people, and tribe, and tongue doing what? Worshiping the lamb on the throne. Salvation belongs to our God. So when we think about redemptive unity, it's all of what you just said, Chip, and that, and there's even more. If you want to string all of this together, it's replete throughout scripture. We see it everywhere. Um, and so when we talk about race, when we talk about ethnicity, um, more accurately, especially in regards to scripture, um, we see it in Revelation. We see it throughout the New Testament. We also see it in the Old Testament, don't we? Yeah, all throughout. Yeah, Bob, speak to yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, this whole theme, uh, you look at Genesis 12 when God comes to Abraham, and you I will bless all the peoples of the earth. And uh, so the gospel goes out. We see this huge theme in the New Testament of Jesus' ministry across ethnic lines. And it is the issue in the book of Acts. Will the gospel be for Jew and Gentile and Samaritan? It's huge uh, parts of the themes of epistles, just like you were saying, Chip. And so it's just a humongous theme. And uh, just two other thoughts here. One is, for so many years of my life, when I heard all those verses, Chip, like you were talking about, I just thought, well, that applies to the people in my local congregation. If I'm just doing that with the people in my little church here, then that's all God wants of me. It wasn't until a long time later that I realized God wants this to be expressed among churches of one church to another church. If I don't know these believers, it doesn't mean that I'm not responsible to love them and care for them. And beyond that, to you know, obey God's call to care for every image bearer. So this thing of love is just huge. You know, Jesus said the whole summary of God's law is love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And there's a guy that sort of was there getting tested. Well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus answers with the story of the Good Samaritan. And it rocks our world, perhaps, when we realize Jesus summarized the whole second table of the law. He summarized the six out of the Ten Commandments with a story of a guy who helped someone of a different ethnicity, and they were supposed to be hating each other. He helped a guy of a different ethnicity with his physical needs. And that is what God calls us to do. So it's a, it's a huge paradigm shift. And, and we look at, you know, the, the story, uh, or rather the teaching in Matthew 10, the sheep and the goats. Uh, golly, at the end of time, what's going to, be the deciding, uh, you know, indicator whether we've known Jesus or not is have we done things like, you know, giving water to the thirsty and food to the hungry and clothing to the naked and visited the prisoner who who probably deserved to be in prison. But we, we visit him. We care for him. We love him. And as one uh, letter I, not, I mean, a uh, uh, thing I read recently, it says, mercy 
is one of the uh, stellar characteristics of a true follower of Jesus. If we don't extend mercy, uh, then uh, it's probably an indication we probably don't know Jesus. Hmm. And it makes me think there's a, a great Martin Luther line where he says that uh, if we are to be truly Christian, we must be Christ to one another. And that means that uh, what our neighbor needs is not just the words of God's people, but their bodies and their hands and their feet uh, in, in real and physical and tangible ways. And I think as we have this conversation, you know, Jeff, you mentioned earlier the idea of shalom and flourishing. Um, when we're talking about that, we're not just talking about that in a, a, a spiritual dimension. Like Christianity is not a spiritualized religion. Our God is the God who created heaven and earth. He is the one who created the spiritual world and the material world, and both are good. And uh, the the life he's called us to, the kingdom that is coming, is one that is not just a spiritual one, but a physical one. It's a new heavens and a new earth with embodied people. And part of our job in pursuing justice as God's people uh, is to seek in every way, both on an individual level, but also on a corporate level, to see that uh, that justice pursued. Um, I mean, you think about like, if you read the Old Testament prophets, they're not just concerned with like, did I, Caleb, you know, do something wrong to my specific neighbor? They're concerned with nationwide larger systemic issues, which means uh, that's a part of God's concern. He, he's concerned. I mean, the laws of Israel, so much of them are about those kind of issues. And so I think just what I want to make clear on this is when we talk about that, uh, this is much bigger than just how am I specifically as an individual engaging in the pursuit of justice? But also it's much bigger than just a need for, uh, when we say it's just about the gospel, well, the gospel has implications for everything. Um, it does not just speak to your soul. It speaks to the whole man. And what we want to do is not just proclaim the whole Christ to the whole man, but uh, in many ways, uh, we, we want to bring that wholeness to bear in a real and tangible way in the lives and the hearts of our people. Caleb, that's good. And, and if I would add to that, I would say, you know, with I don't want to try to overstate this, but I think it's appropriate. Uh, the gospel radicalizes who we are and who we become in terms of how we used to be. Right, and so, uh, and that word radicalized, you know, the, gosh, that carries a lot with it. I'm not saying that we need to be radicals and you know, politically, all this, whatever. I just mean like it radically changes who we are inwardly, and it radically changes how we then begin to function relationally, horizontally. You know, and you even think about the cross. Um, the cross. Uh, the, imagine, you know, Jesus dying on the cross, and we've all seen. A picture of the cross. It has a, ver a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. It's a it's a vertical radical reorientation and reconciliation that happens between God and His people as He redeems them from his, from their sins. But then there's a radical reconciliation and reorientation to how those people redeemed vertically now begin to function horizontally. Right, and so you see that in what Chip read with Ephesians two, uh, when Paul writes in Ephesians two that through this now peace that is brought to us through Jesus. Most of the time, uh, this is me, I'll just speak to my own experience growing up, okay? Uh, once I became a believer and I began to read the scriptures, I read that passage in Ephesians chapter two that, and I'll just read this part real, real quick and, and Chip already read it, but just for emphasis, it says, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I always read that only having the vertical axis in mind, 
of the cross, of that, which is a proper and good application. That's certainly in play here. Um, in fact, it's the, I would maybe even say it's the first thing that we need to see that God has, we're now at peace with God because of the finished work of Jesus, right? And he's, he's removed the dividing wall of hostility between me and God, between us and God. So there's vo- vertical reorientation and reconciliation that's happened. What I'd never read in that verse that I missed for a really long time is that there's also significant horizontal implication to what's going on here. And that's actually the context of the passage. So the context of the passage is, he says, and who has made us both one and has broken us down in his flesh, that a dividing wall of hostility. Well, what is he speaking to? He's speaking actually culturally, contextually to the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. That there were these two people groups that, and I can't overstate this. I don't think in our American culture in 21st century, we really understand the hatred that existed between Jew and Gentile. I mean, pure, absolute hatred, right? And some of the things that if you go back and read some of the documents of the day of Jews about Gentiles, it was the the biggest form of hate speech you could possibly imagine. So I don't know that if there could be a stronger word than hate, that would probably be used here. There, there was great dividing wall of hostility. And what Paul is saying here is because we have been redeemed, reconciled, reoriented, renewed vertically, then there is a radical change in how we begin to deal with one another, even those that have a history that is nasty, right? And so there becomes this, as Chip spoke to, this one new man where there's oneness that now exists not only between God and his church, he is our bridegroom, we are his bride, but then how his bride then begins to interact with one another across ethnic lines, across racial lines, to where this radical reorientation and reconciliation is happening. And that's what we call redemptive unity. We say God's redeemed us, now there's a unity that is happening among believers And it's oriented here. Don't miss this. It is oriented in the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that demands a new radical way in which we engage with one another. And that's the heartbeat of what we're getting at with redemptive unity. Yeah. If I can, if I can add to that, Jeff, you know, just at my confession and back when I preached in September here, I confessed how for so long as a preacher, I just did not understand tons of the Bible, frankly. And the whole issue of race and ethnicity was just lost on me forever. I just saw it as ancient issues. And once Jew and Gentile, you know, gospel went to everybody, like it's over, it's done. And just not understanding the what's in the scriptures. And true story, when I was right out of college, I memorized the whole book of Colossians. Back when I was about that age, I would memorize huge sections of scripture over a long period of time. And the first time I preached through Colossians, I got to Colossians 3, where Paul talks about how we're to treat each other and love each other and uh, compassion, kindness, bearing with one another. In the middle of that passage, in 3.11, says, Here, in the body of Christ, there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And I literally thought... Why did Paul throw that in? He was on a roll, you know? He had a lot of great commands about how we're to treat each other, and why he threw that in, I don't know. So when I teach Colossians, I'm just going to skip the verse. I don't know why he put it there. The second time I taught Colossians, I improved, but I was still terrible. The second time I taught it, I thought, oh, now I get it. 
it was because they were a multi-ethnic church that they had division. And then I realized, well, I'm glad we dodged that bullet. You know, we're building our church on the homogeneous unit. We don't have the problem of multi-ethnicity in our church. Whew, man, I'm so glad we don't. Then later, years later, I realized, wait a minute. Uh, there's not one church in the New Testament that's not a multi-ethnic church. Paul didn't go to Corinth and plant a Gentile church and a Jewish church. That, in fact, this, this unity we have between ethnicities is to be a visible demonstration of the love of God and the reconciliation that comes through the gospel of all things. And then I realized that's not immaterial to the argument. That was central to Paul's argument. And, and we have to understand when we start loving each other up close, it'll get messy. But when we love each other up close, it's hugely important because that's what the gospel calls us to do. Right, right. That's so good, Bob. And I think practically, in so many ways, this gets back to relationships and friendships. You know, and one of my big learnings uh, over these many years is that um, as a white man, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, I, of course, I didn't know what it would be like to grow up or to be a, a black man or a Hispanic man or an Asian man. Uh, my context was um, the culture that I grew up in. Uh, but that really was uh, no excuse for not knowing. When we think again about this concept of oneness of the body of Christ and that we are one. And the reason that I didn't know is because I didn't have any relationships or friendships with those that were different than me. And as I've built those friendships and relationships, I'm able to see the world and the gospel in, in a much more broad and multi-lens um, focus and view because we're able to see it together. And it's a, it's a much more beautiful view and even living out of the gospel. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I don't want to cut anybody off. If there's any final thoughts, or we could, uh, and I I'm not just saying this in a cliche way, we really could sit for a very long time in talking about all the various ways in which this, this issue of, um, of horizontal redemptive unity and how we engage with one another out of the gospel and its implications in our life is throughout the Bible. Um, I'll just mention this. Um, Sean Lucas came, what was that, Jimmy, back in, back in March. January, March? It was in March. It was in March. It was right before right everything, before everything shut down. Wow. Okay. That feels like five years ago. It certainly um, does. <laughs> but uh, Sean Lucas came and uh, did a weekend seminar that was well attended. And, and, and we'll probably have him come again, I would assume, because I, I want more of, our, more of our people to just kind of hear um, what he shared. It was so incredibly good um, in terms of just walking from Genesis to Revelation just walking through the scriptures and showing God's heart for redemptive unity, for gospel-oriented, um, wow, this has been at the heartbeat of what God has been building from the very beginning. And, uh, and, and so anyway, that's a resource. We have that available for you. If you would like it, you can just email us and say, hey, I want a copy of that. They can go to the website and they can listen directly from there. 
Yeah. And is that, tell us the website. Yes. Perimeter.org slash redemptive unity and scroll down to the bottom. You'll see a list of resources and under videos and audio is the first resource gospel and race with Dr. Sean Lucas. Yeah. And, and Sean is, um, he's a PCA pastor, which is our denomination, uh, Presbyterian church in America. And, uh, there's actually another resource. I'll just go ahead and mention there's a, there's a, a compilation of, as we think about even denominationally, the th- the things that have been put out from our denomination on racial reconciliation and on this issue. Um, there is uh, these papers that were all kind of written by leaders within the denomination. Sean wrote some of it as well, along with many others, that has now been put into book format, correct, Jimmy? That's right. And uh, tell us about that real quick. Yeah, so um, one is called Heal Us Emmanuel, and that's more like essay form and teaching elders, ruling elders throughout the PCA. Um, and then, and that's an incredible resource, I think. Um, you'll just hear the stories that have been shared around this table. Um, you'll hear it over and over again in that book. But then also the pursuit of gospel unity, that's actually the work of the committee that was uh, assembled at General Assembly uh, several years back and is what was presented to the entirety of the denomination um, and that's in book format as well. So it's called The Pursuit of Gospel Unity, and links to both of those books are on the Redemptive Unity webpage. That's good. And, and one of the reasons I bring that up is, is just even so our listeners can know, like there's, there's so much thought and time that has been put into this, not just by the five of us sitting around here, but by uh, our denomination and the ways in which we're seeking to, um, to anchor this, uh, be clear in how this is anchored biblically. And, and in the in the scriptures. And uh, so anyway, great resources for you. Here's what I want to shift gears for just a moment. Um, and uh, for the sake of time, I, I want to address a couple of things here that, um, that I think is important for us to speak to. And I don't want to get into the weeds with these things. I, I want to stay at a, maybe at the 60,000 foot view level with these, with these issues, but they're important. And uh, uh, let me, I'll just introduce the first one. When we think about redemptive unity in, in our cur- current cultural context, I think it's, uh, it behooves us that we have to talk about what are some of the dangers out there? What are the things that uh, Christians are concerned with as we have this conversation? And one of the things that I have certainly gotten um, a good bit of, of conversation around with people uh, at Perimeter and other Christians that I've interacted with um, I've seen a lot of exchanges on social media about it. Sadly, not some of them not too uh, too kind and filled with mercy and compassion and grace. Um, uh, and then, of course, I've gotten emails and filled fielded a number of emails on this issue. And that's the issue of uh, critical race theory and uh, critical race theory that is then uh, closely tied into and kind of a byproduct or even a product of. Um, what, what is commonly now being referred to as cultural Marxism. So let me just read just for those who are listening that are like, okay, wait, these are new terms to me. Or maybe perhaps you're someone listening and you've used those terms, but um, maybe admittedly go, yeah, I don't know that I fully have ever heard a clear definition of what that is. And so what critical race theory is, is it's a modern approach to social change developed from the broader critical theory which was developed out of Marxism. And so critical race theory approaches issues such as justice, racism, inequality, so on and so forth, with a specific intent of reforming or reshaping society. 
In practice, this is applied almost exclusively to the United States. Critical race theory is grounded in several key uh, assumptions, and then I won't get into all those, but basically that the government, law, culture, and society are all inherently and inescapably racist. Everyone, even those without racist views, perpetuate racism by supporting those structures, so on and so forth. There's a lot that is in that, but I want to, again, I want to kind of keep it at the at the high level and not get into the weeds, but there's many Christians who are concerned that when you begin to have these conversations and when the church begins to speak up on social issues, particularly racism uh, and racism in America, that um, we are losing grip of the gospel, that we're losing grip of of what is kind of, you know, maybe the main thing, and this becomes our only thing, which we're not saying as a church. There are tons of gospel implications. This is just one of them. Uh, By the way, quick caveat, that's why I'm really excited about this series coming up that we're doing on the image of God, because in that series, we're going to talk about some of those other gospel implications. We're going to talk about certainly the implications and, and how it connects with ethnicity and race, but we're going to talk about uh, the biblical mandate to stand up for the unborn and to fight for the unborn. Uh, We're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about a number of things that are social issues that the gospel demands us to talk about. And so again, this is just one of them, but it is the moment in our culture right now where, and let me make this clear, when the culture around us, there's there's an accusation that, okay, you just go with whatever the church or whatever the culture is bringing up, and then you just swing with it. Okay, I understand that. I understand why someone might say that. However, here's my perspective. When, when our culture at large is shouting about a situation, and there are voices from every place coming into that conversation— You've got conservative media, you've got liberal media, and everything in between speaking into the matter. To me, it would be incredibly foolish as a church, as leaders of the church, as pastors of the church, who handled the Word of God and have been entrusted with the Word of God, to not speak into it. Because then in our silence, we're basically saying, we want you to shape your thoughts around something that's being fed to you out there. And there may be truth in it, there may not be. What do we want to do? We want to think biblically. That's what this is all about. And so we want to speak into it, not because we're being swayed like a swinging door with whatever the culture is talking about, but this is an important cultural moment right now in the United States. The church better be speaking into it. If we're not, then why? Why are we not speaking into it? So as we think about critical race theory, as we think about cultural Marxism, I'd love to hear... Uh, some of y'all's thoughts of ways that we can even hopefully help our our listeners begin to make sense of, okay, just because we're addressing this, it doesn't mean that we're using an ideology that's unbiblical. And so maybe that's enough set up for you guys to begin to to speak into that. So uh, I've got all sorts of thoughts. So whether or not these come out in a coherent manner or they just seem like a scattershot list, we'll we'll see. Um, but I think there's a, a, several things that need to be said in this discussion. Uh, one of the big ones, I think we, we just need to be clear, like right out the gate, you know, critical race theory or cultural Marxism as comprehensive worldviews are antithetical to the gospel. That's right. All right. Yes. I, I want to make that Amen. super clear. None of us are, are arguing that those are things that are uh, compatible with the gospel in that sense. Um, 
However, what I think we need to be careful of is that uh, simply if you say, for instance, that critical race theory says man's main problem is oppression uh, and the gospel says man's main problem is sin. Yes and amen, right? Like we, sin is the main problem. Oppression is is not the main problem. However, uh, we do have to say, because oppression is a byproduct of sin, it's the fruit of sin, it is a problem. And it's one the Bible speaks to. So simply because someone speaks about oppression or speaks about injustice doesn't mean they're absorbing the worldview. Rather, they could be speaking from a worldview that says sin is our biggest problem and the gospel speaks to this area and calls us to engage in it. Um, I think it's also a big piece that I I, I would just encourage us on in this Uh is it seems like in this conversation, and all of us are guilty in this because all of us, we are in process in our sanctification, is that a lot of the times in this conversation, we are operating with a hermeneutic of suspicion. And what I mean by that is, is as soon as we hear something that sounds like something that someone else has said that maybe we don't agree with, we assume the very worst of what that person might mean. And so what I would really encourage us to do is as believers in Christ who have been called to uh, believe the best about each other, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, that uh, we should be thinking, especially when you're engaging with people, they go, you know what, here's someone who has had a faithful ministry, who I've never questioned that they are, when they are preaching or teaching, this is from the word of God. If they start speaking in a way that strikes you as different or uses that language, maybe afford them not a hermeneutic of suspicion, but a hermeneutic of charity and assume that maybe, just maybe, they're speaking not from a secular worldview, but again, from the Bible, because the Bible speaks to those issues. Uh, I mean, if you go back through and read, I'm a church history nerd, uh, the concepts of of justice and corporate identity and uh, the need to undo systemic sins, uh, structural sins, those are not from cultural Marxism. That runs way back because it's all over the Bible. I mean, if I, I honestly, in this conversation, I, I'm convinced I could post quotes from Calvin and Bavinck and uh, Thomas Watson and names of 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 unquestioned orthodoxy, and I could put them out there and remove their names and they'd get accused of social Marxism. The problem with that is, is those guys all died before that existed. Um, it's because it's from the Bible. And so I think we need to be very careful that we're not assuming the worst about our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially when they have a track record of orthodoxy and a faithfulness to the scriptures. Um, I'd add to that, that, uh, I've got a whole, I've, like I said, I have a list. Can, can I throw in one thing? Oh, and please, then I want you to get do. back yeah, yeah, on yeah. your train. In terms of the the, the idea of oppression, uh, so right. Our worldview is not that the story of humanity is oppressor and oppression. But the Bible uses the word oppressor or oppression 128 times. Uh, there is that theme in the scriptures. And back in the 1980s, I remember learning this from R.C. Sproul. He said the Puritans talked about four categories of the poor. There are those who are poor by oppression. There are those who are made poor by calamity. There are those who are made poor by slothfulness. And there are those who have chosen to be poor for the kingdom of God. Then about 15 or 20 years ago, I heard Tim Keller make a comment about that. He said, you know, when a group of people have been made poor by oppression, they have one 
uh, calamity after another because there's no underpinning to face a calamity, a loss of a job or a car that goes out or whatever. And then if you put together uh, facing oppression through, uh, through facing poverty through oppression and calamity, there are times where it's very difficult to figure out when someone seems slothful, is this truly slothfulness or is this trauma? Uh, because they have lived lives full of trauma. But the point I want to make is this. Uh, the Puritans talked about oppression. <laughs> uh, this is not, you know, like, oh, just they use the word oppression. They have to be buying into critical race theory. No, good, good spiritual leaders for generations have talked about these things. And back in my sermon in September, I had a quote from John Calvin talking about, you know, the church history uh, kind of part here of that when we see in the face of another human being, the image of God, we're looking in a mirror. And Calvin said, even if this person is a Moor, that is, if they're an uh, Islamic person of North Africa or Southern Europe, or if they're a barbarian from Northern Europe or Eastern Europe, we're not to disregard them as being different from us because we're the same. We're both in the image of God, and we're to care for them and to care for their physical needs. So when, when people start talking about this, just amen, Caleb, with what you're saying, uh, it's in the Scriptures, it's in church history, and we don't need to overreact with certain words that become trigger words for us. So excuse me for interrupting, but no, no, just had I mean, to get that out there. No, that, that's that's really good, Bob. I mean, that—, that it's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, another piece of this that I think is important, like I, no one in this room uh, would deny that we need to be careful that our thinking, our worldview, our, our theology uh, is not being shaped by the culture. We, we don't want to just be swept along with the winds of, of, of change in the world around us. We want to be grounded on the word of God. Um, and, and I think we would that's why I think that this discussion of critical race theory and cultural Marxism, it's a good one to have. It's one we need to have. We need to be aware of those things because we don't want to uh, accidentally wet ourselves to something that's destructive of the gospel. Uh, where I would really push people is to realize that that culture that could lead you astray can swing both ways. Uh, just because something has a history in the church doesn't always mean it's good. Um, if you think through the history of the church and specifically in the United States, uh, there's a pattern that emerges. Uh, when we were still uh, a slaveholding nation, uh, many churches, a lot of churches, argued that the role of the church was simply to preach the gospel and it was a matter of indifference whether or not you held slaves. You could be a member in good standing. You could be an elder. You could be a pastor. You would not come under church discipline for that because that was in their minds something outside of the bounds of the gospel. Uh, they saw African-American people as, as this is I, it's hard to even say this, as ontologically lesser. Uh, and, and, and thus, it was good for them to care for them by keeping them and protecting them as slaves. That'd be the, the language. Again, I'm not endorsing that. Just hear that clearly. Uh, if you spoke against it, you were seen as divisive. Uh, during the civil rights movement, uh, you saw the same pattern emerge. Churches said, we can't get involved in that because our job is to preach the gospel and the gospel, it doesn't speak to this. This would sidetrack us from the main point. And during that time, there began to be a charge that was leveled at civil rights leaders as a way to undercut the conversation, to kind of stop it cold. They would charge them, and this is going to sound very familiar because we're hearing echoes of it now, they would charge them with Marxism. I think we need to be very cautious 
if all of a sudden we find ourselves repeating the same arguments the church has been making century after century that were used as an excuse not to deal with the injustices being committed against image bearers of God. And I want to be super clear. I don't think that just because you want to have that conversation, you think that, or that that's what's happened. I think it's we should wrestle with this. I need to wrestle with this. But be cautious that what's driving you is not another cultural trend that's just as dangerous and, in fact, maybe even worse because it has been found in the house of God. And that's where ju- judgment, according to the scriptures, that's where it begins. And we need to be super careful about that. Yeah, and Caleb, you know, what I would say in, in with that is um, in, the, in the spirit of charity that you mentioned early, earlier, um, as a people who um, have experienced grace to the fullest— right, in the, in the gospel of Christ in our own lives, that we would be quick to extend grace and charity to each other. And here's, here's something I just would want to be very clear. Give each other space uh, to process. We, we are in a cultural norm right now where society at large has just drawn really defined lines in the sand, And it's become very much a we versus them mentality. And if you're not with me, you're against me. Well, what if, what if there's somebody who says, Hey, I'm in process. I'm really trying to wrestle with this. And can we have some conversations? And and what the, the narrative out there is, no, there is no conversation to be had. Either you're with me or you're not. Okay, hold on. I, but I, I think I'm like 80% with you. I'm, I'm really tracking with you. There's just 20% over here I'm still wrestling with. Like, can we have a conversation about that? Where should those conversations be happening? They should be happening in the church. The church should not be the place where defining lines are being drawn. It should not be where we're saying, oh my goodness, I heard you use a phrase that I've also heard or seen or read is associated with cultural Marxism. Then therefore you must be in that camp. Well, can we talk about it? Can we have a conversation? Can we be in process together? Can we extend grace to one another? Um, and can we not immediately jump on social media and post an article about it? Um, that's my one admonition in this entire podcast <laughs> to the people who follow Jesus. Let's be in conversation with one another, extend charity and grace and have conversations and not jump to conclusions and assume the worst in one another. And... I can't say this enough. Let's help each other to think biblically. Let's continue to push each other towards thinking biblically. I would love it to be true of Perimeter Church that for every article that we've read, we've read twice as much scripture. Like, and and I fear that's not happening. I fear that's not happening happening in a big way. And I don't want to assume the worst in anyone. And when I say that, but that's my fear. And I would love that to not be true in our people. Um, another conversation, and there's, again, so much more that we could say. Yep, Caleb, one more quick Can thought. I one yeah. more thing? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to keep us going this forever. I, I, I think it's important. Again, I'm going to repeat myself just to make sure it's clear. We think critical Marxism and cultural race theory are antithetical to the gospel. However, if we believe in God's common grace— and we believe that the image of God is indelibly implanted in man, it is his thumbprint is there even though it's marred by sin, then that means there's not a single person that speaks to us that is not in some form or fashion revealing something of the truth, and all truth is God's truth. And 
just because the comprehensive theory is antithetical to the gospel doesn't mean there aren't common grace pieces that are uh, helpful to the conversation. Um, And I'll give a a classic example of this. Uh, If you use the language of the Trinity and you talk about what it is that we believe in one God and three persons, right? And you talk about uh, what it is we live in the hypostatic union uh, of Christ uh, between his human and his divine natures. Do you realize that the reason you have that language is because Christians in the past did something that we used to call in seminary, something called spoiling the Egyptians. That's you take what is good and you reject what is bad. They took Aristotelian philosophy and they took categories that enabled them to give voice to biblical reality so they could express that truth more clearly than they could before. It wasn't an embrace of everything Aristotle believed. It was appropriating the parts that were helpful and fit within the biblical worldview and storyline and allowed them to speak those things more clearly that they laid claim to. And we've benefited from that. Uh, It was a way for us to more uh, confidently and clearly express the Orthodox faith. So again, I say this just to say, just because a comprehensive theory is flawed and broken and antithetical doesn't mean there aren't pieces that can be helpful and insights that we can glean from it. That's right. That's Acts 17, right? Yeah, exactly. That's Paul in Athens, and he sees, you guys have made yourselves an idol over here to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you about this mm, unknown that's God. Good, and I think that's a great entry point for us as Christians into this arena that's yeah, for really anybody good. in our church that's taken uh, Theological Foundations for Leadership, TFL, you've heard about the terms common grace and general revelation, but I'll have to say on all this, if you don't really, really understand those concepts and don't learn to, to think in that manner, that we have special revelation, and then there is wisdom that is given to people by way of general revelation and common grace, then you don't even know how to interact with one another about it. And we end up, uh, actually, sometimes the history of so much of the, really in the 20th century was missing the what God had clearly revealed in Scripture we were to do, because we saw some people that weren't Christians supporting it. And instead of supporting it because the Bible tells us to support it, we backed off because non-Christians supported it. That doesn't make any sense at all. But we actually lost our influence in the 20th century in two different occasions, in the 20s and the 60s, because we thought that way. And it was terrible. Mm, that's a good point, Bob. Bob, you have a... Before, I, I want to I move us, and maybe this will kind of be a segue here. I um, want to move us to one other topic before we end for, for this podcast. Uh, you have a a diagram that obviously our people can't see, but I think in, if you're able to get on the website and listen on, to the podcast, many of you are going to be listening as you drive or as you, you know, on your phone, as you run or whatever it may be. And so obviously you're not going to be able to see it, but later on, get on the website and look it up. Uh, but you have a very simple diagram that I think could be really helpful to orient us to even what you're talking about there in terms of um, well, I'll just let you explain it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, actually, there are two. One is called uh, Common Grace Cooperation in Support of Biblical Imperatives. And it's really mm-hmm. simple. That The top, you know, sort of imagine some building blocks. You got a top horizontal block. This is moral imperatives. And underneath it are some square blocks that support that oblong, that longer block. And if there's a moral imperative, whatever it is, you know, let's say it's the moral imperative of that uh, sexual intimacy is within the bounds of marriage for husband and wife. 
Well, we believe that. Muslims believe that. Seventh-day Adventists believe that. A lot of different people believe that. Just because we believe that and they believe that doesn't mean we approve of all this true within the Muslim faith or, or uh, you know, uh, Jehovah's Witness faith, okay? Uh, it's not like we're endorsing everything. If we say, okay, here's what the Bible teaches, we will support the, that the Bible teaches it, and if other people support it, true, uh, great. You know, it doesn't mean we agree with everything they say. So that's one diagram. There's another called the Revelation Scripture in relation to political opinion, and it has a larger, large circle sort of at the top that is what God has revealed in Scripture. On the lower right hand is a circle, political right, lower left hand, political left, and those is like a Venn diagram that, that overlaps. And basically the idea is this. If the scriptures teach something, we teach it. And it doesn't matter if people on the political right are teaching it or the political left are teaching it. So what if they are? We're teaching it because the scriptures teach it. And if you're on the political right or political left, you need to be very aware from those political realms, you will hear things that are not in alignment with scripture. We will, so we don't want to affirm the things that don't align with scripture, just like Caleb said. We're not going to agree with cultural Marxism. We just don't, you know? Uh, but, you know, if, if the scriptures teach something, we affirm what they teach. And just to, to echo what was said earlier, you know, in, in the 1960s, uh, so many Christians said, we're not going to speak up for African-American people having a vote. We're not going to speak up for desegregation of public education. We're not going to speak up about tearing, tearing down Jim Crow laws because there are Marxist and communist and liberal people that don't believe in the gospel that are for that. And if they're for that, we're not going to be for that. That doesn't make any sense. If the scriptures are for it, we're for it. And the same thing happened in the 1920s with the rise of liberal theology. When the modernist began to have nothing to do except deeds of mercy— Evangelical Christians who had a long history of embracing deeds of mercy said, well, if that's the social gospel, we're going to back off. And so instead of obedient, being obedient to the word, they became disobedient because they disapproved of other people that also had that as an agenda. It's not logical. It's not biblical. So we have to be very careful about that, too. And, and uh, I'd just say, Jeff, I would say amen to what you said. Uh, for every hour that our people listen to the news or get onto news podcasts or whatever. Spend an hour and a half in the scriptures. Uh, let your thinking be shaped by the scriptures and be very aware of the sources you listen to and be very selective. And I would just encourage you, if you're listening to anybody, whether it's the extreme left or the extreme right, and there is a tone of hatred and there's a tone of just, that's not a Christian tone to the whole thing, don't keep listening. Find other sources and discern and strain through the strainer of the scriptures everything you hear from every source, and uh, think critically and think biblically. And I, I just a short little piece. Uh, you know, I, I've been for some reason right now. I've been immersed in some Martin Luther stuff. But one of the things that has really struck me recently was he makes this comment on Amos three that the very worst thing that could ever happen to you is a famine of the word of God, because the absence of the word is the absence of God Himself. Um, I think a lot of us, with if you were to look at the kind of things we're consuming, we have actually are living in self-imposed famines. And if that's the case, 
uh, we need to stop and wh- like immediately and go, what is happening? If the imbalance is so great that God has become the small thing and something else has become the greater, just like Bob said, I think we need to be even more so soaking ourselves in the scripture and consuming that. Now, did you say Amos or Amos? Amos 3. Amos 3. I've always heard Amos. That's the way I've always said it. I probably said, said it, it so. wrong. I'm known for mispronouncing things. No, I, a, I love it. I, in my, well, in my opinion, if Caleb Click said Amos or Amos, I'm going to start saying Amos. Well, what so. you should know is I just say things confidently yeah. and then I hope that no one <laughs> speaking me. hebraically, maybe. I don't know. There you go. There you go. It's a great um, point, Caleb. Right, let me, let me shift. Caleb. What did you say, Jimmy? Great point, Caleb. <laughs> Thank you, or, Caleb. Or what my science teacher called me in eighth grade for the entire year, Cable. 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 All right. Cable. Awesome. Uh, let me shift us to one final topic here. And, um, it's an important one as well. It's a touchy one. It's a sensitive one, and but it's another one that's important to to hit to hit on. And many people have reached out saying, "Hey, I have concerns about this." Uh, it's the um, uh, it's with the Black Lives Matter movement, okay. And and um, in my opinion, there needs to be a very clear explanation as to where we are as a church and what we're saying and what we're not saying. And just even in general, kind of where there's there's a bit of a disparity between what some people are saying when they say Black Lives Matter and what others are saying when they say Black Lives Matter. Here's what we're saying. Okay, I want to be clear about this. We are saying that we believe Black Lives Matter as a statement, as a sentiment, as an expression, as a truth to say Black Lives Matter to us. As a church, as God's people, black lives matter to God. Okay? That's what we're saying. What we have not done and what we have no intention of doing is aligning with the official Black Lives Matter organization. Because that organization has stated very clearly uh, some positions on their website and even verbally in various formats, things that we would say that is not biblical. We cannot align with that. So I want that. Uh, to be clear. Um, And I don't know if there's a need for discussion on that. I kind of want to just make that statement. If you have any other thoughts along there. Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, And, and, and I would just, I would say just, just to maybe wrap that little piece up. I just want to use an illustration real, real quickly, just that helps maybe understand even where our black brothers and sisters are coming from. When they say black lives matter, Okay, and, and I'm talking about our Christian brothers and sisters uh, that we're interacting with, that we have relationships with, that we know, we know their hearts, we know what they're saying, okay? Here, here's, here's something that will help us, hopefully, as a body of Christ. One of the most common responses that you're hearing over and over again to that, um, uh, that cry of Black Lives Matter is the response of all lives matter, Okay. Okay, yes, of course all lives matter. In saying black lives matter, um, no one is saying that I know personally, no one is saying, well, black lives matter more than any other life. Doesn't insinuate that all lives don't matter. It's simply saying uh, that there is a people group within our country that because of our country's history and past, and I hope we've made it at least some level, a statement today, an explanation as to why history matters, right? We can't just wipe away history. History has manifestations and implications even up to modern day. And that's, that's understood across all historical study, okay? Aside from that, though, 
There's a people group within our country who have uh, never felt as though they've mattered and their experience has confirmed that. What they have experienced has told them we don't matter. Um, You don't care for us. The thing that I'm hearing most from African-American brothers and and sisters, friends, uh, we don't feel like we've been heard and we're just asking for you to listen and recognize. And so let me give you an illustration. If Rachel and I had um, had a conversation and in the conversation, she came to me and she said, um, Jeff, I don't feel like you've listened to me. And, and the way that you've interacted with me has actually made me feel as though I don't matter. That's your, the experience that I had with you caused that for me. It's like, do I matter? Is he listening? And here's the question, okay? Because remember, love conquers all, right? The biblical imperative is that we love, that we love with the love of Christ, that we love sacrificially, that we love selflessly, uh, faith, hope, and love. But the most important one of these is love, okay? So really the question that Rachel would be getting at is, hey, I don't feel like you've listened. I don't feel heard. My experience with you has affirmed that. Here's my question. Do you love me? And if my response to her was, oh, yeah, babe, of course I love you. I, I love all people. She would say, well, I'm confused by that. What? I don't think you understand what I'm asking. I'm asking, do I matter to you? Are you listening to me? Do you love me? Yes. Yes, I love you. I love all people. And you're included in all people. She would go, I don't think you're understanding what I'm asking. I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying. And your response that when I'm asking, do you love me? Do I matter? Is all people matter. And you're included in that. It communicates to my, it would communicate to my wife, you're not getting it. You're not listening. Of course, we know that all people matter, but are you listening to what I'm asking you to listen to? Here's, here's what I'm hearing from my brothers and sisters over and over again as we have conversations with those in the African-American community. I'm hearing them simply say, is the church of Jesus Christ, are you listening? Do you care? Do you love us? That's what I'm hearing over and over and over again. And there is all kinds of noise brought into the conversation about ideologies and this and this and this. And what we're asking is as pastors, as followers of Christ is, are we allowing the scriptures and the gospel to compel us in such a way to where we are moving to a people who are mourning right now? They're mourning. They're experiencing pain and they're crying out. Are we listening? Do we care? Are we loving them? That's the question on the table. And all this other noise needs to kind of go away so that we can love well and mourn with those who mourn, right? And there are all kinds of people in various facets who are mourning right now. I want to be clear about this as well. Last night, I sat in a room with the Johns Creek Police Department. They're reeling right now. They're hurting They're crying out too because they feel as though 
they've been vilified and that everyone is against them. You know what I did? Not because I'm some great, wonderful pastor and follower of Jesus. I felt like in that moment, what did I need to do? I needed to be there and I needed to listen. And I needed to love them and say, you are heard. I care for you. I love you. And I told them that. I used those exact same three phrases. I'm here, I care for you, and I love you. That's what the black community is asking the church to do as well. And so we got to do it. That's what the, the mandate of the scriptures and the implications of the gospel lead us to do in all horizontal ways. So with that, I'll wrap up for today. We'll come back again with a part two next week. There's so much more to talk about. Um, and so we'll, we'll hit on some more next week and, uh, and uh, leave the conversation a little bit un, untied up right now. Uh, so that we can discuss a little bit more next week. But we are thankful for you, whoever you are, wherever you are, as you listen, I hope that you know the love of Jesus. And I hope his love is transforming your heart as it's transformed ours. To his glory alone, thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon, or we won't see you. We'll talk with you soon. 